Is there any tight end in fantasy that you can trust? Let's go to the booth for a review. Welcome to the Challenge Flag Podcast, where we put your season under review. My name is Blake Watson, and I'm your host, along with my co-host, RJ Beecher. And we will be walking through and breaking down week four and taking a look at week five. I think coming off the heels of week four, something to make note of is all of the injuries across the NFL and how a week like this is really key in making or breaking your fantasy football seat. So, RJ... I know you've played for many years. Have you ever had an injury that's just completely derailed your season? Or have you ever tilted too hard after an injury and maybe pushed your season off the tracks? Absolutely. There's no way you can play fantasy football and not encounter some sort of injury. I think back to just last year where I spent a fairly high pick on Gus Edwards, a guy that was supposed to be stepping into the J.K. Dobbins role and running in the Baltimore Ravens offense as a surefire RB2. And I think it was a a mere week after we drafted, he tears his ACL, and suddenly I have no running backs on my roster, and you're you're just constantly looking for ways to fill that hole that you thought you had figured out. And in that sense, I, I was able to luck into Elijah Mitchell, and he ended up working out pretty well for me. I looked into Leonard Fournette. So a lot of times recovering from those things is luck dependent, but sometimes you just got to make the right calls. And when you see the opportunity to grab a backup or to make a trade, you just have to do that. You got to stop the bleeding and, and try to move on and not linger too long on what you've lost. Yeah, and you bring up a really interesting name when you're talking about your experiences from last season and that's elijah mitchell because as much as an injury can derail a fantasy season an injury is also a prime opportunity for people to go on to waivers and maybe pick up a player that can save your season or or turn it around like elijah mitchell so you look at the situation with javante going down and a lot of people are rushing to the waivers for players like mike boone you know last year when Elijah was picked up off waivers. A lot of people didn't know if that was going to be the guy. And now you look at these situations, you look at Atlanta, you look at Denver, places where the bona fide number one running back has gone down. Is there an opportunity in weeks like this for someone to save their season? Absolutely. This situation in particular, when we look at the the Broncos is, is harder, I think, because Normally, what you do in these situations is the player goes down and you see how the head coach reacts. So in that situation, we we lose Mostert for the year for the 49ers. And Trey Sermon didn't get the carries, even though everyone thought he was the backup. Instead, Elijah Mitchell got it. He passed the eye test. He looked good. So at least for me and my fat budget, I felt comfortable bidding a pretty high amount. I think I bid in the 40s for him because I really was confident he was going to be the guy in San Francisco. With the Broncos, I don't know. You would think it would be Melvin Gordon. He's an accomplished fantasy football running back. He's had great seasons in the past. But man, did he look bad when the touches he he had during that game. So is it a Mike Boone? Is it the newly signed Latavius Murray? There wasn't a lot for us to see. So this one feels like much more of a gamble than I at least felt like when we were dealing with the San Francisco 49ers last year. Yeah, well, I guess the only way we'll find out is by continuing to go through the season. 
And you bring up another name that's interesting, and that's Melvin Gordon, where that's the perfect transition to our studs and duds of the week. And I'll go first, and I'll start with the duds this time. You know, it's always good to get bad news before you get good news, in my opinion. So we'll start with the bad, we'll end with the good. Melvin Gordon is my dud of the week. So this is a guy going into the year where he was in a running back by committee backfield, but it was only a two-person backfield, which for fantasy purposes, with the new age of football, that's kind of just going to be the type of running back that you're going to roster and potentially play week in and week out. And with Javante going down on the first play of the third quarter, Melvin Gordon had opportunity to prove that he's still the superstar running back that we used to see in San Diego. He's going to be the running back that you can put into your RB2 spot and feel comfortable every week. And so that's kind of what people were expecting through the second half of that game last week. And Melvin Gordon actually came away with negative points. So not only did he disappoint, but he he hurt your roster in more than one way. You know, he hurt your roster because he is already in a split backfield. But then when he gets a chance, he goes negative. So his stat line for the game, he only had three attempts in that entire second half. His very first attempt, he fumbled, right? So one fumble, eight yards, zero touchdowns. This is really concerning going forward with Javante being out. You'd like to think that Denver would turn the keys of that backfield over to Melvin Gordon. But after a performance like that, it certainly gives you pause, which I think is where a lot of the hype for Mike Boone is coming from. So were you pretty disappointed seeing Melvin Gordon's second half performance last week? I mean, you have to be when you see someone play that poorly. I, I think my biggest takeaway is I just feel bad for, for Javante and everyone kind of was on the Javante hype train for this year. And you just feel really crushed when you've got a, a young guy that's just got such a good following and gets hurt like that. So as much as as much as I was hurt by Melvin's performance, I just feel I feel terrible for Javante Williams. I do too. And a lot of people are saying it's an injury very similar to J.K. Dobbins. J.K. Dobbins took over a year to come back, about a year and a month. So I guess we'll see for Javante. But for Melvin Gordon, it's certainly not something that is exciting to see if you invested in Melvin Gordon in the draft and were waiting for an opportunity like this. It, there's just no proof that he's going to be the guy. My stud of the week, of course, how could I not go with this player? It's TJ Hawkinson, tight end for the Detroit Lions. So this past week, Amon Ross, St. Brown, DeAndre Swift, and DJ Chark were all out, which pretty much opened the floodgates for TJ Hawkinson, who really stepped up in what was an absolute points bonanza for Seattle versus Detroit. He went eight receptions on 12 targets with 179 yards and two touchdowns. And honestly, he probably should have had three touchdowns if it weren't for a touchdown saving tackle by Seattle where TJ Hawkinson went down on the one. I thought he had scored when I had first saw the play and really couldn't believe my eyes because I would have put him over 40 points on the week. It's one of the best tight end performances of all time in fantasy football. And it articulates the exact argument that people have been making for TJ Hawkinson for years. And that's that he's very athletic. Technically he's very sound. He's a great tight end. The problem is that right now the receiving course is too crowded. You have Amon Ra, you have Deandre Swift, who's a receiving back, kind of a scat back type of player. And then even DJ Chark, you know, DJ Chark never really turned into the 
breakout superstar receiver that people thought he would become, but he's still a very decent NFL caliber receiver. And so for that reason, TJ Hawkins hasn't really broken out like we thought he would, but last week was great news for people who have been TJ Hawkins and defenders. Will he put up this type of performance again, maybe this week, if the receiving core is still depleted? But I think it's just something that TJ Hawkinson fantasy owners are going to have to enjoy for a single week. RJ, who are your duds of the week? So I will be sticking with the Detroit Lions when we look at my stud for the week, just because that game was so fun to watch. It was high scoring. I don't think anyone had really high expectations going into a matchup between Geno Smith and Jared Goff. But alas, my stud of the week is Jamal Williams. Filling in for the injured DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams had an outstanding week producing 108 yards and two touchdowns on 19 carries. Those numbers were good for a nice 23.9 fantasy points and surely rewarded managers who were brave enough to start Williams and give him the nod this past Sunday. It's also very interesting to point out that Williams is currently the RB6 in PPR scoring so far this year, and he spent most of those games as the second fiddle to DeAndre Swift. So as long as Swift remains injured, Williams is a must-start fantasy asset. Now for my dud of the week, I'm going to revisit the good old accountability corner and take some accountability on my recommendation to start Amari Cooper last week. It really seemed that Cooper had turned a corner in the Browns' offense after his really poor week one. He posted back-to-back 20-plus point weeks and was looking to keep the ball rolling against a very beatable Atlanta defense. That Atlanta defense is so poor that both Blake and I had recommended that you start two Browns. And just when you think you have fantasy football figured out, you figure out that you don't. Amari Cooper crashed back to earth on Sunday with a 1.9 fantasy dud. Posted his lowest target numbers of the season, reminding fantasy football players that you cannot trust anybody who is relying on Jacoby Brissett to be a consistent NFL starter. With that, we're going to go ahead and jump into our special segment of the week, and we will be investigating the tight end position. The title of this segment is going to be Tight End Wasteland. So the idea for this segment came from last week's show. Blake and I had a lot of extended content that had to get cut. But one of the questions that came up while we were discussing, I think it was Kyle Pitts, was whether or not there was still a tight end positional advantage. If I'm not mistaken, Blake, I think you had asked that question to me and we bantered about it for a little bit. That's correct. Yeah. With Kyle Pitts disappointing a lot of people, I know that there's been discussion about whether or not he's droppable, but something that I brought up was Well, I don't know if he is droppable because he kind of just fits in with the rest of the league. So I I think that this is an excellent segment to look at to kind of address that question I asked. Yeah, it was a fun one to do some research into. And just as a general disclaimer, we are, of course, only through four weeks of the NFL season. So a lot of the numbers and stats we're going to review today are not a full season's worth of content or anything like that. This is simply just looking at the first four weeks of the season and trying to answer the questions as to whether or not there is a positional advantage for tight ends and were the tight ends that were drafted fairly high in this year's draft worth the draft capital that they cost. So to start things off, we're going to take a look at the current rankings for tight ends through the first four weeks of the NFL season. We, of course, have Travis Kelsey and Mark Andrews as the number one and two, just like everyone expected. Number three, we have TJ Hawkinson, which is very interesting because if you looked after week three, TJ would have ranked as the tight end 12. And after his 
really, really monster performance. He jumped all the way up to tight end three, which I think just adds a little bit to this idea that the tight end position is so unreliable past Kelsey and Andrews that he could make such a huge jump in those rankings. But after him, we have Zach Ertz, Tyler Higby, Gerald Everett, Pat Fryermuth, Tyler Conklin, Dallas Goddard, and Will Disley. Like, I'm going to go ahead and just ask you this. Are there any names on that list that surprise you? I think Tyler Conklin is kind of surprising, especially because people expected Tyler Conklin to produce in years past. And now that he's gone to the New York Jets, which just seems like a wasteland of its own, but it's a wasteland for far more than just the tight ends. It seems like it's a wasteland for any player or position that goes there. But now that he finds himself in New York, he established something strong with Joe Flacco. And it looks like at least through one week, it's carried over Zach Wilson as far as target share goes. So I have to say of all names, that that one surprises me a lot. And then, of course, Will Disley, one of a three-person tight end committee in Seattle, is somehow cracking the top 10. And I think going into the season, correct me if I'm wrong, RJ, but people didn't expect Will Disley to be the number one in that offense. I think it was Noah Fant, if if memory serves me right. That's who I would have put my money on. I mean, Seattle wanted him as part of that trade for, for us that seemed pretty intentional that they would have brought Fant in to incorporate him into the offense. So I think you're, you're right on the money there that that one is super surprising. That, that trade's starting to look like a, a big win for Seattle, but depending on how they use those draft picks, too, that could just be a lose-lose trade since you brought Russ's name up. Yeah, uh, he has certainly had his ups and downs. So when we look at this list, I think it is helpful in answering the question as of was there a positional advantage through the first four weeks of the season? Now, I like to take these fantasy points that these guys have scored and compare that to where they would be on a receiver list, because I think it helps put it into some more context about how widespread this range of outcomes is. So for Kelsey, he scored 78.3 fantasy points, which would make him the equivalent to the wide receiver six on the year, which is Christian Kirk. Mark Andrews has scored 68.3, so 10 points difference there. And he would be the wide receiver 11, which is Debo Samuel. TJ Hawkinson's right behind Mark Andrews. And keep in mind here that, again, Hawkinson scored over half of his points in one week. He's got 64.1 fantasy points, and that would make him the wide receiver 14 or CeeDee Lamb. Ertz has 54.1, which would be wide receiver 25. Josh Reynolds, who is kind of surprising that he's a top 25 wide receiver, but that's a different story. Tale for another day. Tyler Higby's got 50.4 fantasy points, which would be wide receiver 33. Devonta Smith, Gerald Everett's got 49.1, which would be wide receiver 33, which is also Devonta Smith. Pat Fryermuth's got 46.3, which is Adam Thielen. Tyler Conklin's got 46.2, which would also be Adam Thielen. Dallas Goddard's got 46.0, which would also be Adam Thielen. And finally, we have Will Disley with 41.6 fantasy points, which would be wide receiver 44, Devontae Parker. So with a single tight end spot in fantasy, what you could do to compare these and ask yourself is there's really a positional advantage. And I'll pose the same question for you, Blake. Let's start with at the top, Christian Kirk. Okay. Christian Kirk obviously wasn't drafted super high, but he has been a pretty good stud through the first four weeks of the season, even with last week's kind of disappointing performance. But if you had... Christian Kirk in your tight end spot, and you were playing against Devontae Parker, would you say that there's a positional advantage there? Oh, absolutely. I'm a little bit biased to the player that you chose for this. Of course, Christian being a a former Aggie, but also I've 
raved about Christian Kirk on episodes past. I think having that type of player in your wide receiver two spot gives you a positional advantage over many other wide receiver twos. Certainly over Devontae Parker, we're, we're talking about a, a pretty significant positional advantage that's 80 on the season to 40 points on the season you're looking at twice the production per week and i understand that tight ends kind of have very up and down weeks depending on when they score it seems to be a very touchdown dependent position but when through four weeks you've doubled up someone else's points and it's not because of a single week outlier that i that screams advantage to me yeah, I agree. And I think we could play this game and, and go through this exercise like a few more times. I mean, you get to really probably the CD Lamb spot is where I kind of draw that line. And you you pointed out the whole Hawkinson scored more than half his points in one week. For him, it he's kind of more of a weird one because obviously he, we got the positional advantage from Hawkinson in week four. We wouldn't really be having him in this discussion if not. But for the sake of argument, we're going to go ahead and just draw the line at the top three and say... Christian Kirk, Debo Samuel, C.D. Lamb, their point output versus the Josh Reynolds, the Devonta Smiths, the Adam Thielens, and the Devonte Parkers would, in my opinion, fall into this category as saying, well, I'd, I'd much rather have those top three guys. Those seem to be the positional advantage. And if you want to throw Hawkinson out and just stick with the top two, I think it's it's pretty conclusive to say that the tight end positional advantage of having Kelsey and Andrews is not dead at this point this year. Yeah, and you bring up a a good point with Hawkinson, and this is something where when you talk about positional advantage, it, it both rings true and false for Hawkinson. Like you said, most of his points came from one week. He had a 39 fantasy point performance in PPR leagues this last week. And when you have 64 points on the year, you know, you're looking at almost two thirds of your, your fantasy production coming in a single week, looking at season stats, you always have to pull outliers out when talking about positional advantage at any position, but having someone like TJ Hawkinson, who fits the mold of a super athletic tight end with very sound skills, if he gets the opportunity, like he got last week, he's shown that. He, that is a true positional advantage. So you look at this week, going into this week, Amon Ross still might not play. DeAndre Swift, I, I think at this point, he's probably a 50-50 chance. And disclaimer, we're recording this on a Thursday. And and DJ Chark, as far as I know, he hasn't practiced this week either. On a season-long basis, no, TJ Hawkinson might not be a positional advantage. But for this week, and and potentially for any other week that one, two, those players that I just named are sitting out, that certainly is a positional advantage. And you can plug in a player like that with great confidence thinking, well, I think there's a chance I double up the other tight end on the other team minimum, you know, and, and TJ Hawkinson last week, you're talking about four, five to six times what another tight end will score on the team you're playing against. You bring up a really interesting idea here, and that's simply that when you go to draft players, you should be looking for guys who who have weak winning upside, right? And so simply enough, when we're drafting fantasy teams, why don't we do that? Why don't we go and draft the super athletes like TJ Hawkinson, or we can throw a Kyle Pitts in that argument, right? That's why Pitts was drafted so high. That's where I'd make an argument. So TJ Hawkinson, he... He fits the mold of not only an athletic receiver, but I, I should have also pointed out he has the potential for the right situation to pop up. 
any given week just because he has a serviceable quarterback. He has an offensive line that will give him some time to throw. They have a run game that they can establish, which opens up play action. It opens up a whole bunch of scheme that Dan Campbell can draw up, allowing Hawkinson to have a game like this. It That doesn't apply to Pitts. They don't have a running game if Cordero Patterson's not playing. They don't have a quarterback. Marcus had seven completions last week. I know this is a stretch. I could probably get seven completions in the NFL. I, you know, especially if Cordero Patterson and Kyle Pitts are on my team, that's just throw, throw the jump ball up 20 times, 30 times. I bet you I get seven completions in a game. The, the point you bring up with Kyle Pitts, upside there, there's no upside in the situation. Hawkinson, you have upside in the situation. And so that, that makes a difference. You look at someone like Irv Smith. For example, I think that's a better analogy to draw where Irv Smith has the potential to have a breakout week because he has a good quarterback, a serviceable offense. If Justin Jefferson were to go down or Adam Thielen were to be out for the rest of the season, now you're looking at someone who both has the skill and the situation to be serviceable. I use this as a a pretty good transition point. I bring Pitts up specifically because... I feel like we've we've tackled the first question. We we agree that there is a positional advantage at the top of the tight end position. Now the second question we have to answer is, well, were the tight ends worth the draft capital? Because clearly, if there's a positional advantage, we should go secure the top tier tight ends. Let's take a look at where tight ends were drafted at their ADP spot and where they are currently ranked. Because you would say positional advantage, let's go grab the top guys. So let's see how that worked out. Obviously, Kelsey was drafted as the tight end one. He's the tight end one. And Andrews was drafted as the tight end two. And he's the tight end two. So, boom, you get those guys. You got your positional advantage. You're ready to go. Well, number three was Kyle Pitts. And he's currently sitting at tight end 18 on the year. Number four was George Kittle. He's tight end 45, which, of course, he missed a couple games there. So that factors into that equation. But he hasn't really looked great since coming back. Darren Waller was next at tight end five. He's now sitting at number 12. Dalton Schultz was the next at tight end six. He's tight end 35 right now, also missing time for him for an injury. Dallas Goddard was tight end seven. He's tight end nine. So pretty close to value there, a little bit lower. Hawkinson was tight end eight. Obviously, we've talked about him. He's tight end three now. Ertz was tight end nine, and he's up to tight end four. So he and Hawkinson are the only two so far that have exceeded their spots. And then Dawson Knox is was drafted as tight end 10, and he is tight end 23 on the year. So when you look at this list, you would be pretty disappointed if you drafted a tight end pretty much any earlier than, well, Goddard is the first person we really hit on that was pretty close to their draft slot. Anyone between Andrews and Goddard, you're probably a little bit annoyed of what draft capital you paid for those guys. And I think it just goes to show that when it comes to the tight end evaluation for pre-draft rankings and all that, it, it, it's almost coming to me like it's not quite as extreme as defenses, but it's very nearly at that point where defenses is like we come up with a list and it's never accurate. Do you, do you kind of see the same thing here? Yeah, I would say I, I see the same thing. It's kind of like this is very much like what people are discussing with running backs now, which is great or late. Now, the thing that's really difficult with tight ends is how do you predict great? Because it seems like the only qualifier that a lot of experts have for making a tight end an early round selection is elite athleticism and extreme upside because of that athleticism. So that's why guys like Kyle Pitts, Darren Waller, they end up shooting up the draft boards when they shouldn't because 
another argument people make is, well, the situation for a lot of these tight ends, just it's all the same. You know, tight ends are blockers first, pass catchers second. Well, no, that's not always true, at least not for the elite tight ends. Sure, Travis Kelsey can block well. Sure, Mark Andrews can probably block well, but both of those guys, they're receiving threats first. And that's really where you see that positional advantage. You see a guy like George Kittle, who has all the skill in the world. You know, he he can catch the ball. He can run routes as well as Kelsey, Andrews, potentially even better than those guys. But he blocks so dang well that that's just how the Niners use him, you know? So it's almost like there's a downside to him being too good of a tight end that it ends up hurting his fantasy production. So I, I think we have to look past just athleticism and we really have to take situation into account when when selecting an early round tight end. People knew George Kittle's situation coming into the year was not conducive to a high fantasy output, especially with Trey Lance coming into the fold and, and the fact that he is a... a primarily a run blocker but because we've seen him break out before with jimmy garoppolo and we know he has the athleticism and skill he just shoots up people's draft boards and and now people are really regretting that i feel like we go into draft season every single year and you listen to various podcasts you read articles and every year they say the same thing and that's hey if you don't grab kelsey or andrews or in past years, it's been Waller or Kittle, whatever it is. Whatever, it's the guaranteed production. If you don't get them, they tell you to wait and just get a guy at the end of the draft that you think has upside. And I always find myself wanting to go get a tight end. I, I know this year I wanted Kittle. Jordan stolen from me. Last year I wanted Kittle. Jordan stolen from me. And I've lucked out several years where I, I've owned Kelsey and Kelsey's produced for me. But generally, outside of that, I don't really spend too much draft capital on tight ends. And I've really lucked out by finding I got Kittle in his, his breakout year off waivers. Last year, I got Dalton, Dalton Schultz off waivers. This year, I went ahead and grabbed Hawkinson, but I've got Conklin on my bench and some other leagues and, and things like that, where all of my data tells me not to do it. And I still find myself wanting to go grab those early guys in the draft because I'm so scared of just getting a guy that's not going to produce on a week by week basis. So I think it's important for us to go through these and, and really look at, well, well, why do the experts tell us to not go and draft these guys? And there's fairly good argument from the data that we've gotten through four weeks of the season that these guys do know what they're talking about when they give us that advice. A lot of that has to do with the formats people are playing in. Tight ends are great around the goal line. They're great for red zone touchdowns. Just big bodies who take up space and and easy targets for a lot of quarterbacks. So you see it a lot in standard leagues for regular, just you know, run of the mill tight ends. Not your Kelseys, not your Andrews. But then when you talk about PPR, for example, well, now you're talking about volume plays. And so you see a guy like Dalton Schultz. The argument was he was the number two in Dallas. And so his target share was going to be through the roof. And so it's really tempting for guys like that. You know, they they sneak up the draft boards in PPR. I think I found that as I've kind of transitioned into playing more super flex fantasy football, it's a lot easier for me to resist going after the tight ends because there's a whole new importance placed on getting those quarterbacks and then depending on which league you're drafting in the the running backs and wide receiver pools they they dry up so quickly that you feel like you have to you have to get that train on the tracks before you switch and even think about getting tight ends and in those super flex leagues i found so much more success and i i think a lot of that is thanks to the fact that i do wait on 
on getting tight ends. I will say last year, very first super flex draft I did, I drafted Darren Waller in, I believe, the third round. And I was fortunate enough, I was able to trade him away after a monster performance in the first four games of the season. And really, it was the first game. And that kind of saved my season because I think had I held on to Waller and not gotten very high value for him in James Robinson before his injury and C.D. Lamb, I believe, was the other player I got for Waller, then, you know, I I don't know that I would have had a very successful season. I think I would have been very disappointed with my decision. So moving on past everyone's favorite position, which is of course the tight end position, because I I think it's it's safe to say that everyone's favorite play of the week is their tight end. We'll uh we'll go into some better plays of the week that may be at different positions that you pay less attention to. So last week our plays of the week were not so great. I picked Kareem Hunt who I thought would get more of a share from Nick Chubb. That did not happen. Kareem Hunt scored 8.8 fantasy points, so we're going to count that as a loss. I am now 1-1, and I picked Brandon Ayuk, I believe, in 11-point performance. We call that a push. RJ picked Amari Cooper, and I remember I dogged RJ a little bit last week saying that that was a slam dunk play, maybe a little bit too easy. And Amari Cooper came out and put up a stellar 1.9 fantasy point performance. So I don't take the loss, even though I I was able to criticize RJ and I get to dogpile him in saying that that is now the worst play of the week selection we have on the season. RJ now 2-1-0 and zero on his plays of the week. So still a winning record. My start of the week for week five is wide receiver for the Washington Commanders, Terry McLaurin. You could also probably apply this to Curtis Samuel if you would like. However, I think that this analysis is a little bit more applicable for Terry. Therefore, he's going to be my start of the week. First, and perhaps one of the most important notes to make, is that Washington is playing against Tennessee, who is currently the 29th ranked fantasy defense against fantasy wide receivers. That means that they give up the fourth highest amount of points to fantasy receivers, and I don't think that this week is going to be any kind of exception. Another really important note for Terry McLaurin is that Jahan Dotson, the wide receiver on the opposite side of the field, is likely to miss this game. So on Thursday, the day of recording for this podcast, Jahan Dotson is officially listed as questionable. However, his hamstring injury is likely going to cause him to miss one to two weeks. The reason that this is a little bit more important for Terry than it is for Curtis is because Jahan Dotson is also more of a field stretcher. He's a down the field target. He doesn't really play the slot role for Washington. So I think Jahan, because he's come in and been a better rookie than I think a lot of people imagined. He's taken some targets away from Terry McLaurin, but more importantly, he has taken some touchdowns away from Terry. I think when you're playing against a bad defense in terms of their secondary, like Tennessee is, that there's a very good chance that at least one receiver is going to get in the end zone and score. And why not Terry? especially because if you're going to split the field in terms of your short pickup yards routes versus your play action, your deep passes, stuff where you're trying to catch the defense a little more off guard, I think Terry has an excellent chance to catch, if not a red zone touchdown, then maybe more of a breakaway down the field type of touchdown. 
Also, I think Carson Wentz will have a bounce back game after his last two weeks. The last two weeks he played against Philadelphia and Dallas. Both of those defenses are much better than people anticipate coming into the season. Obviously, Philadelphia is the last undefeated team in the NFL, and Dallas has been able to stay afloat during Dak Prescott's absence in large part thanks to their defense. Of course, you have a, a little bit of better quarterback play from Cooper Rush than people expected, but their defense has been forcing turnovers, has been shutting down the pass. I think Carson Wentz struggled a little bit against them, obviously had some turnovers. I think he'll bounce back here, and I think it starts this week against Tennessee. My best play for the week is James Robinson. Fantasy managers may be a bit hesitant to reinsert Robinson into their lineups following last week's poor showing of 2.9 fantasy points, and Robinson getting outsnapped by backfield mate Travis Etienne, who played 51% of snaps compared to Robinson's 47%. But let's pump the brakes before getting too panicked here. Etienne did only slightly more with his touches. He had 4.0 yards per carry versus 3.63 yards per carry for Robinson, and he handled the same amount of work. They both had only 8 touches. Not to mention that the weather was absolutely terrible in Philadelphia last week. I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that their head coach, Doug Peterson, was a little bit more concerned that his stud running back who they've relied on so far is just coming off an Achilles injury and he's now playing on a really sloppy wet field conditions in Philadelphia. I really think that this was being precautionary, keeping Robinson safe, keeping him out of that bad situation so that he can be healthier for the rest of the year. This week, Jacksonville gets a date with the Texans this week who have surrendered the second most rushing guards in the league this year. They've surrendered 688 yards through four full weeks of the season. I fully expect Robinson to get back on track and produce at a high-end RB2 level this week and put down some of the doubts that people may be having about his usage in that Jacksonville offense right now. Now, moving on, we are going to introduce a new segment this week, and this is going to go hand-in-hand with our best plays of the week. These are going to be our fades of the week, and these are people that... Maybe Blake and I are a little bit more down on compared to where they're being ranked by experts, or maybe we're telling you to pump the brakes on a hype train, whatever it may be. We're just going to be looking at one player each a piece. We'll be kind of keeping track about their performance the next week, just like we've been doing with our best plays of the week and keeping a record of how we're doing with our predictions. So I'll go ahead and start things off with my fade for week five, and that's Josh Jacobs. Now, this is a completely flipped script from James Robinson. Last week, Jacobs exploded for 34.5 fantasy points after turning in some middling performances to start the year. Unfortunately for Jacobs, he draws a date with the Kansas City Chiefs this week, and they have inconveniently allowed only 263 rushing yards on the year, which is a league best. I think this is simply because when you play the Chiefs, you have to throw the football. You can't run on them. Mahomes will get ahead by so many yards that usually teams just abandon the run and I really think that's going to hurt Jacobs this week. It's really unlikely that he replicates his 28 carries, let alone the 144 rushing yards that came with it and the two touchdowns. I think he turns in a scoreline much more similar to what we saw in weeks one through three. He may not be a complete bust, but I want to caution fantasy owners that have Jacobs and think that he's a no-brainer must start now and just consider that this is a really, really tough matchup and to temper their expectations for him this week. Blake, who's your fate of the week for week five? My fate of the week is Pittsburgh Steelers running back Najee Harris. 
Najee is playing against Buffalo this week, and while you could really insert the name of whatever running back is playing Buffalo in this fate of the week, I think it's specifically bad for Najee. Najee is being paired with rookie quarterback Kenny Pickett coming out of Pittsburgh, and while being paired with a rookie is bad, being paired with a rookie who doesn't pass to you is even worse. So when Kenny Pickett got put in the game in relief of Mitch Trubisky last week, he didn't target a single Steelers running back over the course of two quarters. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, of course not. They didn't let the rookie throw the ball. They probably just ran the whole game. That's where you'd be incorrect. Pickett targeted Pat Fryermuth four times. He targeted rookie receiver George Pickens four times. He targeted Deontay Johnson, and he targeted Chase Claypool two times each, and not a single running back in Pittsburgh got a target. That's where Najee made the bulk of his production when Big Ben was the quarterback for this team last year, and we've already seen Najee's fantasy performance suffer because of the lack of work in the passing game. Yes, maybe they want to take some pressure off of Kenny Pickett, so they decide that they're going to run the ball, and Najee's going to get a bunch of touches. And that's great, but when you don't get value for your touches, which you won't when you're playing against this Buffalo Bills defense, then there's really no path to a viable fantasy day outside of either A, scoring a touchdown or two, or B, getting work in the passing game, which I just do not think it's reasonable to expect. Maybe Coach Tomlin talks to Kenny and he says, hey, you know, your best options are your safety blanket, your tight end, and your running back. Maybe they work on some special routes to get Kenny Pickett easy completions, maybe get him in the groove. And if that happens, then Najee might be in for a great week. But based off of what we saw from Kenny Pickett's entrance into the NFL and into quarterbacking the Pittsburgh Steelers, it looks like it will be a tough, tough matchup and tough game script for Najee Harris. All right, that is going to do it for this week's show. We thank you all for joining us. And as always, we wish you the best of luck in your fantasy matchups this weekend.